0: Greetings and salutations, fratres et sorores, in Luke's of all kinds, of the north, of the south, of the east, of the west, from here in Los Angeles, when I look to the west, I'm looking at the east, and when I look at the east, I'm looking at the west, the world goes round and round, whatever, east, west, it's all the same to me. The Esoterra Nerd Podcast, Episode 2, in which I interview Kess Fry. He is the author of Centering Prayer and Rebirth in Christ on the Tree of Life, which he dedicated to my dad, as well as another man named Jim Gordon, uh, both of whom set Kess on the path toward studying Hermetic Kabbalah and the Tree of Life. He also wrote The One Who Loves Us, Human Ground, Spirit Ground, The Creation of Reality. Born January 22, 1945, he grew up here uh, in Eagle Rock. Well, I'm in Highland Park right next to Eagle Rock in northeastern Los Angeles. Uh, he attended Eagle Rock uh, junior and senior high schools, went to Pasadena City College, where he met my dad in the s- 1960s. He studied Eastern and Western philosophy, psychology, and religion with special interests in meditation and depth psychology. His main spiritual teachers, Lama Anagarika Govinda and Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, as well as Swami Amar Jyoti and uh, Father Thomas Keating, and he'll be talking about some of them in the interview coming up. But before that, I thought it might be fun to introduce you to something I call Theoricus Poker. If you are an esoteric nerd, or you aspire to be be an esoteric nerd, um, and you have a friend of, of, of a similar ilk... Uh, then you might try Theoricus Poker. Basically, you, you just have to know all of the correspondences. We all have one or two special tarot decks wrapped in silk that we use for reading or pathworking or whatever, but don't we all have a few decks lying around that just basically do nothing but collect dust, and every once in a while we bring them out and look at them and go, oh yeah, this deck. Here's a fun way that we can turn these old decks into a game that we can use to drill correspondences, to stay sharp. Divide the 78 cards evenly among however many people you're playing with. So if you have two, you each get 39. If you have three, you all get 26. Uh, At a certain point, you'll probably have to set the extra ones aside in a discard pile. Maybe everybody gets to know what they are. Basically, it works like this. Whoever has the Fool card lays it down in the middle. The person to their left has to lay down a card that connects to it. So they could put down a king and say, well, that's Absolute, that's Keter, it's connected to the Fool. They could put down a sword. Well, it's Air, it's the Fool. They could put down an Ace, One, Keter, connected to the Fool. They could put down a Two, it's connected to Chokmah. They could put down Justice, Libra, ruled by Air, Aleph, the Fool. The Star, or Lovers, the three signs of the Zodiac, ruled by Air, the element of the Fool. Any good esoteric nerd would probably argue that Any wand would uh, correspond with absolute and therefore be connected with the fool. Then whatever card that second person put down, the third person has to put down a card connected to it. So if they put down Aquarius, saying it was ruled by air, the next person could put down any seven. Seven of pentacles, seven of swords, seven of cups, seven of wands, whatever. It's Venus that's connected to Aquarius, since Aquarius connects Netzach with Isod. Speaking of Isod, any nine, the moon card, even though it's ruled by Pisces, the High Priestess, since it's ruled by the moon. You get where it's going. Let's say someone puts something down, and you're playing, no matter even if it's not your turn, you can call bullshit on it. You can say, okay, what, that's not connected. And uh, then the person has to pick up the whole deck, and whoever runs out of cards first wins. But, if you call bullshit, and the other person can explain how they're connected, then you end up with the whole deck. So if you're a beginner, you don't want to call bullshit. Not until... You really know how to play the game. What happens if somebody picks up the whole deck? You've already played the fool, right? So who's got the magician? Has anybody got the magician? Somebody puts down the magician. Goes with any king or eight for mercury. Goes with any ace or three the it connects to. Goes with the lovers. Goes with hermit, both ruled by mercury. Goes with wand, primal element. Goes with the sword, element of the planet. Maybe it's too stretchy. And then there's the Shem correspondences to consider. The five of pentacles. The Three of Cups, the Ten of Pentacles, the Eight of Wands, the Eight of Swords. You get where this is going. This isn't a rule book kind of thing. I'm not going to hold your hand through this, but if you Google Theoricus Poker, you'll find uh, the original blog post in which I uh, suggested that possible use for these old decks. Anyhow, just a little something fun before we move on to the main course. I hope everybody's well. It's been less than a week. I, I, I felt that uh, that first episode warranted a second episode coming out because I think that people who don't know me would be like, yeah, it's some guy in a fancy outfit, but then she's just talking to his, like, stepdad and, you know, talking about old times or whatever, and, you know, anybody is welcome to call and we'll talk about whatever, but uh, I wanted to use this old interview. This is actually from last year in October um, Kess Fry, my dad's old friend and, uh, fellow esotericist. He, uh, they both were into Eastern and Western esotericism, which is of course where I get it. So I'm kind of second generation esoteric nerd. Uh, Kess was in town and I, I was particularly interested in any insight he might have about my dad and his esoteric background and, in context, you know, and things that things I might not know about. So that's one of the things I ask him about, but I also ask him about his, uh, Background and experience with those who've influenced him, and so, without further ado, here's the interview. This is Monday, October 27th, 1:37 p.m. This is Edward Reeb talking. I am interviewing Kessler Fry. So, so you were talking about the Karmapa being very different in his previous life? Yes. What was he what what was different about him?
1: Well, I didn't have much personal contact with him, but the impression, you know, that I've gotten that as the supreme leader of the Karjupta order, he was more authoritarian and directive. And the new one seems to be reaching out to people in the West and Communicating to us in our language,
0: although the, his predecessor did send. What was his name? Charum? I can never say. Chogyung Trumpa. Chogyung Trumpa.
1: He was one of my teachers.
0: Yeah.
1: I did have personal contacts with him on a number of occasions. Nice. And there was another renowned teacher named Kalu, Rinpoche, who the Dalai Lama called the 20th century Milarepa. yes mm. um, Yeah. So, uh, <coughs> and I also had contact with this Kalu Rinpoche. He was a very enlightened being. Trungpa was kind of controversial, hmm. because he he felt like if you want to teach Westerners, you need to become super Western. Hmm. So he was while he was teaching, he was smoking cigarettes, drinking beer and other you know, alcoholic substances. No Gordon and likes him so much. A lot of people <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> just couldn't handle that, because that didn't meet their expectation yeah, yeah. of what a, a holy man or a guru was supposed to be doing. So he's
0: and, very different from... Uh, Chakdu Tolku?
1: Oh yeah, I would say extremely different. Well, Trungpa went to Oxford University and studied psychology to become familiar with Western culture before he started teaching, Mm. at least teaching in America. And uh, So he was very controversial, and I was at a teaching at one of his centers in San Francisco that Kalu Rinpoche was giving, and he he worked through a translator. Trungpa had learned English. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the people, I guess, who had been disgruntled with Trungpa said to uh, Kala Rinpoche, how can, you know, how can somebody uh, like Chögyam Trungpa be a spiritual teacher we can respect when he carries on the way he does, drinking and smoking and you know, other things? And Kala Rinpoche's comment was, it's often very difficult for unenlightened sentient beings to understand Buddha activity. <laughs> nice. So he was very supportive of, of Trungpa, even though Kala Rinpoche was kind of a model of asceticism. He spent 12 years meditating in caves. Oh, that's his, in is caves. That him? Yeah, oh, no. that's oh, different. Okay. Yeah, that's a different lineage. He's a Ningma Pa. Oh. And um, Kala Rinpoche was a Karjupta, which is what the... Uh, Karmapa, he's the head of that order. There's like, you know, these different schools right. of Tibetan Buddhism. The Nyingma Pa is the old ones, and that's the school that was founded by Padmasamava and Yeshi Sogul. Wow. She recorded all of his teachings, and they buried and hid a lot of them. And then there's the Kagyu school, which was begun through Marpa and Milarepa a few centuries later. Have you seen this one? Oh, um... Yes. Yeah, this is one of the biographies of... Uh, I'm not sure if I've seen this exact one, but... Yeah,
0: i read that one. This is one of
1: the biographies recently. of samava
0: Yeah, the lotus-born by... Uh, how do you pronounce her name?
1: I How I pronounce it? That's not how everybody else okay. necessarily <laughs> does. <It's laughs> is Yeshi Sogo.
0: Okay. Yeah, I've been saying Yeshi Tsjokal.
1: Yeshi means wisdom. Okay. In Tibetan, I'm not sure what the meaning of Sogyal is. Right,
0: maybe it was a family name. Or something.
1: But she she attained enlightenment, you know, in a female body, and uh, was very highly renowned.
0: Yeah, I've got a statue of her in my yoga room.
1: I I have kind of a connection to her myself. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So anyway, there's those two schools, and then there's the another school that came along after that. Was the Gelugpa, and that's the one that the Dalai Lamas are in.
0: Right. So the Gelugpa. What's his relationship to the Karmapa? Because they seem to work together.
1: Well, they're they're like you could compare them on a political level to the president of the United States and the president of Canada, oh. or the prime minister of Britain. I mean, they they get along. They're heads of major orders, and they cooperate. Right. Know? They're all working towards the same thing. Shogyang Trumpa I think, was the the 12th Trungpa Chulku. So oh. there'd been... And there's another... She passed away in 1987. And there's another reincarnation of him in Tibet right now that's growing up. There's a reincarnation of Kala Rinpoche. There's, there's reincarnations of many Lamas. The Dalai Lama is certainly a prime example of that. Yeah,
0: 14. And, and
1: there's been many Karmapas, but he's the first one that decided to go outside his lineage in such a big way and offer teachings to people in other cultures yeah. like America more in our language. So he's not he's not teaching Buddhism per se, but he's teaching kind of a spirituality which is based on Buddhist principles. But he's not he's not trying to win converts to Buddhism. Right. Maybe that's the unique thing about it that they were referring to. Yeah. Probably. Probably.
0: And what's this book you have here?
1: Oh, this is a book called The Ageless Wisdom. And this is a little more in the Western mystery tradition, but I've read this book. I think it's a it's a wonderful overview of The Ageless Wisdom. It's by a teacher who was an Armenian named Torkum Saradarian. It's kind of in the tradition of the teachings of Alice Bailey, there's like a Tibetan who dictated a series of books to Alice Bailey. She was involved in the Theosophical Movement okay. in the latter 19th and early 20th century. And then after Madame Blavatsky and I think Annie Besant had disappeared, there was there was kind of a schism within the Theosophical Movement.
0: Hmm. What, what year about?
1: 1920 Okay. And... And Alice Bailey, their headquarters was in Hollywood here in in SoCal. Mm -hmm. Alice Bailey was kind of conflicted about which camp, you know, the schism to go to because she liked the people in both of them.
0: Right.
1: You know, often there are these egotistical power struggles and spiritual organizations just like there is in the, the business world, the political world, and other places because of people's egos. Yeah. So Alice Bailey was wondering what to do and All of a sudden, she was like in her apartment or whatever, and this voice started speaking to her, telling her, you're not to go with either of those camps, but we have a special line of teaching to pass through you. And so, Jual Kul is the name of the Tibetan. They call him the Tibetan. Uh, He's supposed to be one of the masters of the spiritual hierarchy. And when she was younger, she had had an experience. She has an unfinished autobiography that I read. Um, when she, she died, I think, in 1948, she had a, a, you know, an experience where another one of those masters of the hierarchy actually manifested to her. And that's what got her started on her spiritual journey and led to the breakup of her marriage. And a lot of different things happened. And she, she was British. She spent some time in colonial, British colonial India and then she came to the United States. And so she went on quite a journey and then she was contacted by this teacher and he dictated a series of books to her. And it's a continuation of what was started in the teaching like the secret doctrine, you know, theosophy. Right. And it's, it's very kind of heady stuff, but really interesting. I haven't read the whole the whole library of it. Yeah. There's an organization called the Lucis Trust, which is the trust of her work. And they have a headquarters in New York City and one in Geneva, Switzerland. And uh, there was a woman that I met up in Anchorage, an older one, through a place called the Adams Center, where Adams stands for Ancient Teachings of the Masters. Mm. And... Uh, we became good friends. She was older than me. But she had gone through the complete course of study of all the teachings presented through Alice Bailey's books. And, you know, had a complete collection of it. And uh, in her meditation, she was having contact with this Tibet, she told me. But anyway, this guy, the author of this book, was also a teacher of hers, She was at that time living in Southern California and she started going to his teachings when he's teaching out of his garage in the San Fernando Valley someplace. Hmm. She thought very highly of him. And what he teaches is in that same line of teaching. So that's kind of a little bit of background. But I would say in this book, he gives a really concise, readable, and accurate summary of what that's all about. So this is a very important uh, introduction to that teaching, and it's really an important part of Western esotericism. A lot of people, particularly people that have been focused on the Golden Dawn, like you have, may not have heard much about. Right. But it's very important. In fact, Paul Foster Case, who started the VOTA, he was friends with Alice Bailey when she was here in, living here in Los Angeles, because they were they were contemporaries. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you read about that in that that biography I've recommended about his life. Oh, a life uh, and teaching of. No, well, it's a life and teaching of Paul Foster Case. The author's name is Paul Clark.
0: Oh, the one who started uh, the other order, the yeah, first well, of the schisms.
1: There was when the B O T A had its little hidden light uh, schism or whatever you would call it. Yeah, he split off, but he he was entrusted with all this information.
0: The FLO,
1: right? About Paul Foster Case. Yeah. And he kept that quiet and then finally decided, after, I don't know, 40 years or something, to make it available to people by putting together this biography of Paul Foster Case and the transcript of several communications that he and Ann Davies and Harriet Case had with this uh, master, Rikos, also known as Count St. Germain, hmm. Who's one of the masters of this same hierarchy that Joel Kuhl and, you know, they have different names. There's a teacher named Moria, the master Moria, who supposedly was in one of his previous incarnations, the gospel writer known as Paul. Okay. Or St. Paul. So he has a very fiery personality. Yeah. And this this teacher was kind of that way too, because he was a direct. I, I was physical curious. Physical plane student of his.
0: You were mentioning the um, Theosophical Society and the connection to uh, Tibetan. Um, my dad's teacher, Andrew de the in the eighties. Uh, I found I did some research and found out that his teacher, or one of his teachers, was the secretariat <clears throat> of the Italian chapter. Of the Theosophical Society, mm. so I thought that was kind of interesting. I wasn't sure if you had any insight into his background because he's sort of a mystery. I, I got to meet his other students, and everybody was just asking each other, "Do you know anything about him? Do you Andrew know G. anything Fasano?
1: about him?" Well, I met him once through your dad. He wanted me to to hear this guy teach, and so he he took me and another friend of his named. Runyon or something?
0: Paul, uh, uh, uh Polk Runyon.
1: Polk Runyon. That's that's his name. Mm-hmm. Who I'd never met before. Mm-hmm. Your, your dad, uh, John Dan Reeve, and Polk Runyon and myself. We went over to the uh, Philosophical Research Society, mm-hmm. and Andrew De Passano, you know, gave a a presentation. Nice. So that was you know the one time that I had contact with him, didn't talk with him very much.
0: And he did He did a meditation, right? He did yeah,
1: he about. let us in some meditations and, you know, he was in, you know, some basic teachings. Yeah. I didn't take those up because I was occupied with the you know, things I've been doing. Right. Very interesting. Something that I could tell you regarding your dad and Andrew De Pasano um, was that your dad told me this, that, Andro De Pisano physically asked him, uh, could I borrow some energy from you? He asked your dad that. And, and your dad said, sure, you can borrow some energy from me. Hmm. And then, uh, and this actually may have contributed to your dad's death. Hmm. I don't know. But then, uh, astrally, Andrew Depasano came to your dad and took energy. And then he came back, and he looked, and he saw what he had done, and he says, oh, my God, like he was shocked that he had, I guess he had taken too much, too much or something. And uh, it wasn't a good thing, you know. It, was, it, it affected your dad's well-being and his health.
0: Huh. I didn't know about that. When was that?
1: It was the same year he died. Was it 93 when he passed away? Really? Huh. Well, the last, it was the last time I saw your dad. I was down here visiting and he told me about this wow that this guy had asked permission and your dad gave it to him thinking it would be a rather harmless thing to do but well then... i know
0: that toward the end of his life andrew was trying a lot of things because he was battling cancer yeah. and uh, at one point he went down to i believe it was columbia for a certain sacred agave plant and he was communing with the plant for a long time mm. and uh that had something to do with something he was trying to fight the cancer, and uh, so yeah, he was. He seemed to be in a desperate place of wanting to live longer, and uh,
1: yeah, which which in a way uh, makes you wonder about how well prepared he was for his transition. Yeah, I and mean, my belief is this that we are intended to stay in these bodies and live our physical lives as long as it's possible for us to continue evolving spiritually. And at some point, we reach a point where we can't really grow anymore, accomplish anymore, work off more karma, you know, whatever the different things are we're intended to be doing in this incarnation. And at that point, it's time to leave. Yeah. Because we have to continue on the inner planes and then again for the vast majority of us in another human incarnation. You know. And one should accept that with grace and be ready for it. Wasn't
0: one of Andrew's primary goals in learning this stuff was to extend his life. Yeah. I
1: don't and I
0: think that was one of the things he was teaching, one of the things in the ad that he put out. But he was he in his
1: eighties when he borrowed the energy from your dad one, uh, Edward's dad <laughs> almost said your dad, but you're a dad in law, I guess I would say. <laughs>
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, but he borrowed the energy at John. It, it seems like what happened is that Andrew Dupasano now owes a karmic debt to your dad. Right. Which he will have to repay in the future. Right. Incarnation, most likely. Yeah. But uh, your dad wasn't happy about it. And he just said that he, he trusted, you know, that
0: yeah, it was his and teacher. He, he, no harm. He loved and respected. Come him.
1: to him from this, yeah. yeah. And he wanted to help the guy, but he just took him up. I, mean, I have, I know nothing about that, by the way. And I've <laughs> heard of. Well, your dad referred to prana leeches, as I'm sure you know, real yeah. well. Yeah. There are people that are prana leeches, and there's people that are like astral vampires and stuff. But generally, without your consent, they can't take yeah. your energy.
0: Right, but with your consent.
1: But with your consent, then you've
0: you've invited the vampire in.
1: <laughs> Yeah, if that's a vampire, uh, you have invited it in. And that's a kind of a scary.
0: Wow, that gives me a, a whole thing new. to contemplate. A whole new perspective on Andrew, because I I'd never heard anything but positive before about Andrew.
1: Well, it definitely affected my perspective on him, and I was never personally involved with him, so I didn't have a real. Attachment to him, you know, in a the positive thing,
0: way. The one thing I remember, Andrew said, at me, he says, You have a very bright papa. <laughs> Which is interesting, thinking in context of what you just told me, of kind of a double entendre of bright as in as in intelligent. But he was talking about auras. Your, your, your father's very bright in the world. He's very.
1: Well, I think both of those are very true of John Dan. Yeah. He was a force. No question about it yeah he was a force and uh he was bright and as i told you last time i was here this uh, woman uh, up by lake arrowhead named delaying you know when i asked her after your dad had passed away about him she said that he was needed on the inner planes for some important spiritual work with energy that was affecting the future evolution of consciousness on this planet and that he had actually been allowed a few more years than was originally planned. Now, that's a whole other take or perspective on the thing as opposed to Andrew DiPosano taking too much energy.
0: Have you been to (laughs) Eastwick Village? No. I recommend before you go, in fact, we could go, if you want, today, later. Um, My dad's third wife.
1: Was that Susan?
0: Yeah. She opened a store called Eastwick Village. Yeah, I told you. Yeah, in Sierra Madre, where where, they, where my dad grew up and where he lived. Um, and uh, it, she said that she was in contact with my dad for a long time. So after a year, she would I would go over after a year, and she would say, oh, well, you, you know, your dad, John said this, this afternoon, you know, and I'd be like, oh, that's interesting, okay. Um, and uh, she she now has a husband, a Greek husband. Um but you know, I go visit her every now and then. Well, today
1: would be the day because yeah. I'm leaving Thursday, and I've got other things I'm going to be doing. Yeah, yeah.
0: So yeah, maybe maybe later on after Diane arrives gets and, here. Um, I I have a friend who might be joining us for the for the ritual work later on.
1: I can stay uh, here
0: in case she comes back. Okay. The store has that when you walk in you see that redwood stain that my dad had on everything or that that cherry wood stain mm-hmm. color and uh, statues of buddha and the, the incense she she was controversial they she was called a satanist uh they, there was uh, letters given to all the churches there was a woman who ran the angel store you know the little angel knickknacks across the store who was trying to get her since she became the uh the manager she became the building manager sue so, and, uh, and she said, well, you've got the keys. Why don't we go spy on so-and-so's new store? And Sue said, no, that's you know, unethical, that's immoral. And so the other woman uh, you know, disappeared, and then suddenly these letters started showing up at the local churches saying Susan Reeve is the devil worshiper. Run
1: your competition out of town by yeah. getting them condemned. Burned at the stake
0: If possible So I went to the local <laughs> Catholic church there And at the time I was singing in a Catholic uh, Russian Catholic choir Yeah And I went and introduced myself To one of the nuns there And uh, and I told her about Sue And I, t- I told her that You know Times are changing Like people who Who are very Christian oriented Who think that Buddhists Are devil worshippers Are wrong And you know my, my stepmother is a Buddhist And she believes in Buddhist principles and she sells items of a Catholic nature, of a Buddhist nature, of a Jewish nature, primarily. There isn't really anything else. There's no, no witchcraft going on, you know. And, uh, and she's being called a devil worshiper. And so I told her this, and I said, I, all I want from you is if you could just tell the Monsignor that I spoke to you. And uh, if you have any kind of contact with the other churches, because I know they all got the letter. And uh, so I did what I could, you know. But uh, yeah, yeah. since
1: Vatican II, the church officially recognized that other religions are valid paths to God.
0: Exactly. Yeah, it's the really ignorant people who are still on an old script from people
1: that are way back in that traditional, uh,
0: like the equivalent maybe of
1: pre-modern stage. Oh, like
0: Tibetan that would say, "You better use this every day, or or else."
1: Exactly, and that's exactly the kind of thing that Diane said that stuff he was putting on people the guilt and the threat of hell if you don't do the practice every day yeah. to her was equivalent to the type of fear that they tried to instill in her when she was going to a parochial catholic school in the 1950s a child it's like trying to control you by fear rather than opening love. you to the love yeah. which is what the message
0: of That's Christ always is been. all about yeah, yeah.
1: it's love and freedom it's not Intimidation and terror, terrorism, you know, on a spiritual level. Well, here, why don't you take this book? Thank you. I'm sure both of you will find it interesting to read. Um,
0: I wanted to well before I forget. Um, <laughs> my dad talked about flesh place fear junkies, you know, in, in his book. Oh, that's that yeah. that that one of the things that come to mind when I think about those ideas is uh, is that if somebody dies and all they can think about is oh where's my body i gotta stretch or even i need a cigarette you know or i need another i need to slam some heroin you know like in order to in order to have that addiction whatever it is i need lust i need you know uh, sex or whatever it is um they find themselves slammed back into a body and possibly one that uh you know, they didn't take the time to choose their parents. They just said, who's available? And, uh, and maybe ended up somewhere unpleasant. Um, and I noticed that Karmapa, in his 16th incarnation, died in 1981 and was born in 1985, the same year as my wife. Uh, what was it, the year of the... Wood ox. Wood ox. Um, well, anyhow, so that made me think he spent three years in the bardo. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that, about if there's a connection between the amount of time between incarnations and perhaps the level of consciousness or level of enlightenment of the, of the being and uh, their decision to stay in the bardo longer.
1: Well, you know, with the exception of these bodhisattva tulku's who choose to keep reincarnating, they're not reincarnating because of the karmic need to. Because they have lessons to learn, or whatever. But they're simply car- reincarnating to be of service to the spiritual development of humanity. And uh, they, uh, I believe that they, they wait until the right time arrives, the right circumstances for an appropriate incarnation. Yes. Yeah. So, in terms of our physical time, you know. It, It could be shorter or longer, but it's usually within a a few years or so, but it, it may need to be longer, depending on what their mission is going to be when they come back. Yeah. And I think they're in a very different category than most of us, you know, who are evolving, and we need to reincarnate in order to work out karma and to learn lessons and to grow spiritually, but still, our soul will choose... Circumstances in which we have the best possible chance to continue growing spiritually. But if somebody's a flesh placed fear junkie, and they're so uh, they're they're so strongly desiring to fulfill carnal addictions, whatever they are,
0: even negative ones like even fear, even
1: negative ones, yeah. or fear, or or even hatred. Yeah, I'm going to go
0: back and fight in a war.
1: Exactly, I know of a case of
0: that. MacArthur?
1: Of somebody that somebody that was a, a jihadist, was a brother of somebody that I knew who I was
0: working with in jail, a person from... He wasn't an inmate, by the in way.
1: Belarus. <laughs> I wasn't an inmate with the, the person I was working with. Yeah. And his brother had gotten shot. He'd shot plenty of people, too. Right. Uh, and I asked uh, my sister, you know, to ask her guides about about this person and what information she got was that he can't wait to reincarnate so he can start, continue fighting ah. in the jihad. He's a fanatical Islamist.
0: My parents, when I was very young, my, one of them, I forget, I think it was my mom, uh, they told me that uh, according to the, Book of the, De- the Tibetan Book of the Dead, that when I die I'll be faced with two lights and one of them is bright and terrifying and the other one is softer and yellow and warm and comforting and uh, that if I I, in my fear of the bright light and my desire to get away from it go toward the soft light uh, I'll find myself in another body and if I go toward the bright light I'll find myself in the higher planes and from there you can still incarnate, but when you do, you do on purpose for a reason. Like, uh, but if you just go to the warm light, you just get a body. <laughs> you get to keep going. You get whatever, you know, uh, astrological blueprint you need to uh, work out some more karma. Yeah,
1: that's, that, that seems to be the, the basic teaching of that book, which was authored by Padmas Amava mm. and written down by Yeshi Solyam. Called the bardo photo which means liberation by hearing so the idea and the way that was originally done was that after a person who had been in that culture and been in that religion and had studied these teachings and had been practicing yoga and meditation meditation type yoga preparing for this uh, they were supposed to have that read to them while they were dying and after they had died and it, it says that when you first die, you know, when, when physical death first takes place, there's this dawning of the clear light, which is the pure luminous radiance of enlightenment, non-created reality. And the ego, the separate self sense, will recoil in fear from that light, because it senses that it will be dissolved. <laughs> If it goes into that light, yeah. But if someone is prepared for that, according to that book, it's possible to attain liberation and enlightenment by allowing your consciousness to merge into that clear light.
0: Yeah, because you don't have a body anymore. That's something that makes me think of taking acid, um, because when when you're there, you're 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 standing there, and everything that's around you. Really, comes across as being an extension of self.
1: Almost tripped over that. Yeah, I'm okay.
0: Is a a duality happening, but it's a harmonious duality where you where you realize that it's just happening. There's this there's this polarity between what I get to control my hands, and then what gets controlled by other the other. But Mm -hmm. but but really, and even looking at the brain. It, given what little we know, still in 2014, there's this portion of the brain that it, is basically the recording of the other, and there's the uh, the acting self. But the one thing that was pointed out at Boda a few weeks or a few maybe a year ago by a woman who what was her name? She passed away. Troya Patch. Troya Patch. She had pointed out while talking about the Universe card on Saturn that um the, po- the portion of the brain that records one's own present time facial expressions and voice is the same mechanism that records the facial expressions and voice of others and so neurologically the ego the this the, the self sense of self and the sense of others is the same mechanism. Mm-hmm which blew my mind. <laughs> and, yeah. and and she was looking right at me at one point, and then afterwards someone said, have you have you guys met? And we said, we know each other, <laughs> but we haven't been properly introduced. And then, and then I found out she passed away, and, and it doesn't feel like she passed away because of the nature of the little you know uh, interaction I had with it.
1: Well, it's interesting that you had mentioned that the psychedelic experience made you think of the... But I imagine of the Tibetan Book of the Dead because the, one of the first texts, I don't know if you know this or not, but hmm. one of the first texts that was written as a guidebook for people having psychedelic experiences was called The Psychedelic Experience. It was put together by Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, who became Ram Dass, and Ralph Metzner. Mm-hmm. They were all at Harvard University in the early 1960s. And it's based on the Bardo Thodol, on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Hmm. And they actually guide you into this experience with the clear light and these other realms that the, you can go into.
0: The difference being you come down afterward. But if you're, if you're dying and you're in the Bardo... It's a one-way deal. No? Then you can dissolve into it. <laughs> when you're on acid and you're peaking, you want to dissolve into it, but you can't. But it's okay. And then you come down and you accept that death is going to come later. But... Uh, it's interesting to think about confronting the experience and being there and actually having the option to dissolve this thing I call Edward into this thing I call God. The other.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. in, my, in my memoir there, you, there's a, a few uh, attempts to recreate some of those experiences. So.
0: In, uh, in the Divine Chimander of Hermes, uh, chapter 2, uh, it refers to it, it's a conversation between Hermes, I believe, I might be a little off, and uh, and po- Pomander, P O E M A N D E R, and uh, it's it, it reminds me of that same sort of psychedelic, as they say, knowledge and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel, or 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 the uh, the communion between self and other that you can get to in a very deep uh, meditative sort of trance or or in a psychedelic experience, sometimes, or even just sometimes. I mean, maybe they call it an acid flashback, you know. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, there's many people uh, in. I don't know if you've read the. Uh, I'll just go off on a trip, and then I'll you know ask you another question. But um, in the DMT, the Spirit Molecule, the book by. <laughs> oh no, that was Jeremy Narby was uh, was was the uh, Cosmic Serpent uh, knowledge DNA and the Origins of Human Knowledge which is also a very, I recommend Um, but DMT the spirit molecule Oh, while while I'm recommending books um, The Hermetic Code in DNA by do you remember? Um, well that's another good one it's a little heady and the thing with Hermetic Code in DNA is you'll hate it until you're about two thirds of the way through (laughs) and then it starts to come together and you're like Oh, I get it. Why it's called <laughs> DNA, you know, because they're talking about the pyramids and and all this other stuff. And you're like, mm-hmm, okay, yeah. When are you going to get to the DNA thing? Because I'm reading this because I I perceived kabbalistic correspond. Well, other people see them too, uh, who are into numerology and things uh, and and Hebrew letters will discover in DNA. I'll just run it run it through real quick, and we'll both have a copy of this interview. Uh, that you can correspond the way I do it I don't know if anybody else has done this but I have it on blogs and things Uh, thymine is spirit uh, uracil is fire uh, and then there's there's uh, what's the opposite of the one that bonds with thymine Uh, there's adenine cytosine and guanine so adenine would then be water and uh, cytosine and guanine one of them is earth and one of them is air and I have it written down I based it on which one's a purine and which one's a pyrimidine but it deludes me at the moment. So this not, is all physical chemistry. Physical chemistry grafted with hermetic correspondences, and so of mm-hmm. course I was interested in a book called Hermetic Code in DNA, but it never did it get anywhere near what I was talking about. But um, uh, So I, I, I developed an alphabet of, uh, of DNA language based on d- sigil drawing, uh, the, the traditional Golden Dawn method of drawing sigils, uh, on a... Um, a regular sort of equal armed cross, uh, but the, the 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 upshot is that when th- that thymine is only found in the nucleus, spirit is only found in the heart. You know, uh, when when it wants to send a message out to the rest of the tree of life, or to the ribosomes, uh, for instance, um, it uses messenger RNA, and so uracil replaces thymine's role. Uh, so rather than than, than thymine bonding with adenine, which it does in the DNA, it, uh, uracil will bond with adenine, and so when it, when it's when it's sending a message, it uses fire, not spirit. It was sort of intuitive, uh, the, the 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 idea it was sort of inspired and in, in a half sort of uh, intuitive sort of state, uh, but uh,
1: very interesting.
0: But that, uh, yeah, the and then it goes it goes on and on and on because the uh, the mitochondrial DNA comes from the mother's 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 mother and that's in every cell there is a mother and that mother takes the nutrients that comes in from the cell membrane from the channel proteins and makes fucking dinner for the cell you know makes makes it into energy that's usable to keep the whole thing going and that's the mother's 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 dna so so you know um looking to me that that corresponds with that the, you have a relationship with your digestive system, where it has it has its own brain matter. It has it worked into it, and when it it's hungry, it communicates it to us, mm-hmm. and uh, we communicate back. When we feel sad, we tell the digestive system, and it behaves differently than it does when we feel confident.
1: And, and the emotions definitely affect yeah. what's going on in the
0: gut. So there's a sort of a a, a relationship happening in here, you know, between and so. So I, I, was, I was kind of cogging on this, and, and at a, a certain point, when I was falling asleep, I was contemplating mitochondrial DNA. I had had a dream in which my mother was shouting at me from inside of, uh, of a tent, <laughs> and, uh, and telling me that I was doing something wrong, and I, it was the first time I had cut out meat, and I wasn't taking iron, and, uh, and I got really sick, right after I had the dream. And so I started really getting into this, and we were talking about Chinese medicine, and, uh, and uh, dream symbolism and, and, and the biochemical interpretation of dreams um, and uh, so anyway the point Is that when I thought of all this at once, and I thought of my mother and her mother and her mother and her mother and her mother, and and I thought of the mitochondrial DNA in all of the cells in my body, and I thought of my own digestive system, Mm -hmm. and then I just shined some golden light in this whole part of my body that I had been kind of ashamed of because it smells gross. You know what I mean? Just for a very shallow reason. Um, I was like, eh, digestive system, meh, you know, especially when I was unhealthy and drinking, and you know, it's just. What I put into it, you know, it gives back, and so I go, ugh, gross, you know. But I just said, thank you, and shined some golden love, and mm. it shined it right back.
1: Oh, and, and it
0: was this figure eight of golden light, and I wrote, I got up and I wrote it down, and I, and I tried to describe it in poetry, and, and then the last line was, and I'll never be the same. <laughs> it's very beautiful, but uh, I got off on a tangent. An
1: epiphany, there. though. You had, yeah. You had a, a gut level... Spiritual epiphany, <laughs>
0: but when D- the author ricked something of uh, of DNA the spirit molecule went to uh, this particular Buddhist uh, monastery, I, I, it's in the book. Um, he, you know, and the woman that was the second to the head, you know, uh, of, of it uh, was a friend of his, and she, her original, she was just you know going to school, and then she took acid, <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, now she's. Got her head shaved, and she's uh, she's been at this Buddhist monastery for all these years because she knew that acid, uh, which operates because of dimethyltryptamine, which is part of acid, um, was uh, you know it was the shortcut. It was a shortcut, and it was and and, and the people who had walked the long road to enlightenment knew about that shortcut, because, you know, it's not new, you know? I mean, maybe LSD in particular is new, but psychedelics aren't new. Like, taking taking a strong, potent dose of a drug to try to get the kundalini to raise before you are purified, before you're a proper vessel to receive it or be a healer, and you're going to use it for some other
1: dangerous. evil end. It's
0: dangerous. It's dangerous, and it's, it's, uh, it's... So so people sometimes will cog on that, and but their <coughs> original... LSD, you know, experiences LSD, and then it eventually becomes taking the long road of yoga and meditation.
1: you know, as Ram Dass put it, a person having a psychedelic experience with LSD or some other sacred substance, assuming that they use it that way, you know, as a sacrament in order to explore deep within themselves and to seek a deeper spiritual experience, that experience shows them the possibility what's there for them. So it kind of serves as a wake up yeah. mechanism. But then in order to get to the point where you can live in that place, you have to work on yourself. You have to overcome the inner obstacles of what's called the false self system. Yeah, for example. The things in us that are counter to those higher spiritual values. We need to outgrow our immaturities and are fixations on programs for happiness that don't work. Yeah. And that's the work that needs to be done. And so a person undertakes various types of discipline, they may become a monastic, like this woman you were talking about, or whatever, go through some type of therapy, and work on their physical well-being and their emotional well-being and social well-being, yes. mental, spiritual, psychic well-being, and so forth. Because as long as that work isn't done, we're carrying the dead weight of the whole self-system and it's going to keep dragging us down and it's actually going to create mixed motivations in our higher aspirations. There'll be part of us that really wants to go for the higher, but there's another part of us that just as much wants to to go for these contrary, lower-touch things. See, it's simply out of ignorance not understanding oneself yeah. deeply in love. But as long as that is intact, people won't be able to really evolve and live in that, that higher place. You might say we, it's good it's good to get high, but we also have to get clean in yeah. order to stay high. Yeah. Otherwise Oh, I like that. Otherwise we're gonna be dragged down. Yeah. By our own impurities. Our own neuroses.
0: I was thinking about um, the ideas Hook forth by many people including tellier de Jardin about uh, the the interconnection of human consciousness uh, centers brings mm-hmm. human beings uh, and communication through words and and then of course now through technology uh, that that exponentially has increased where you can have a dialogue with a community which exists geographically in many places but um, you know, in their thought process, in their in their mode of of, of, of reality, uh, they they are similar, and then they can you know, really brainstorm and really. So one individual has the ideas of three hundred people that they were just reading about that morning on Facebook, and uh, you know, or, or or whatever it is, you know, they, the potential for that exists. Um, the point being, yeah. So in the in the 50s and 60s, the world got a the world brain. The, the collective consciousness got a dose of LSD and uh, perhaps perhaps uh, it has triggered more of a, a general uh, awakening toward that hopefully um, I mean each each new person you know grows up I've seen you know a lot of people for example someone who grows up in a racist southern kind of you you know sort of uh, environment and then takes acid and goes, Oh man, okay, come on. And then they go to college and they're, they're looking through new eyes and then uh, they're, they've transformed. It's like a. Uh, uh, so it still is going on. There's ripples of uh, ripple effects where it's still happening today you know, and, and, and having an effect similar to what it ha- had happened to maybe people in colleges where they were doing those experiments. And it was a
1: minority of people who had these experiences a lot of people were using those substances as, as recreational, fun-type things yeah. for entertainment Yeah. For more, or for pleasure, different types of things, more superficial uses. Yeah. And then if, if someone isn't prepared, uh, it's like you're opening a door to your unconscious that you can't close, and if there's material in the unconscious, a person isn't ready to face and accept and assimilate, it can be a hellish, destructive experience, yeah. frightful experience, and many people had those because they were totally unprepared and weren't really taking it seriously. They were using it in a very flippant
0: uh, the way they just shell way. they'd maybe it or... Yeah. yeah,
1: just, you know, go out and party as a party drug or something.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's a complete uh, mistake because something that could be potentially extremely valuable is degraded. yeah to a much lower level.
0: How did you meet my dad? I never heard that story.
1: Oh, I didn't tell you. I
0: thought I told you. Or the maybe you did, here. but I forgot.
1: There was a student of his named Jim Gordon at Pasadena City College who I was friends with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was there, like, in the school year of 1965 to 1966. hmm And then, uh, I met Jim and became friends with him and then I transferred to UC Irvine in the fall of 66 which was when your dad began teaching at PCC and Jim was one of the students and Jim got involved with him privately studying about the Kabbalah and the Tarot and esotericism in fact Jim told me that he wanted to be an esotericist I didn't know what that meant <laughs> so he introduced me to your dad he says you got to meet this guy Reed he said, he comes on really strong, but just, you know, don't panic. <laughs> just hear him out, you know, and and he's really cool. And so I said, sure, I'd like to meet him. And so the next time I was in the area, I met him. That's how I met him. Nice. Went over to his house, and he was talking about the tarot and a little bit about uh, William Butler Yeats, you know, and the Golden Dawn, and... He had this friend named Jack Davison. I guess the two of them had tried to initiate themselves into the Kabbalah and the Tarot. Nice. And Jim was sort of their pupil. And He talked about Alistair Crowley, you know, and just saying, stay away from him, you know, because he really takes you down... That was
0: how I ended up in the Golden Dawn. Down was, the wrong path. ...was uh, that recommendation, because my mom remembered that. Yeah.
1: Crowley was a person that experimented with a lot of drugs. And and I guess he, at some point, he just kind of walked off the cliff. You know, and abused and overdid it. And he he invoked uh, spirits that were very destructive to him. Yeah. Thinking he was getting a lot of power. And one of his students, Crowley's students, was a well-known man from this part of the world named uh, Israel Regardi. He has several books. You've probably heard of them. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book on the Golden Dawn, the Tree of Life, and the, the Palmer, Garden of Pomegranates and stuff. And your dad told me that he had called up Israel regarding he was going to go drive over and visit him. I think he was living like in North Hollywood or someplace like that. Mm-hmm. And he said that while he was driving over there, he kept sawing the, the image of Major Arcana 15, the devil, hmm. in front of him as he was driving over there. And then he, he said he went up and knocked on the door, and Regardi went through the door, and Regardi was proclaiming to him that Alistair Crowley was a god, he was a living god, and he was saying all this hmm. really positive what stuff. What year was about that? 60s? I was in the 60s. Okay. Yes. Hmm. Um I can't would any sort to tell you
0: which... Oh, that's okay. That's. I was just curious. Which year I could have been... Just wanted to... For the,
1: 67 or 68, or even possibly 69. I don't know. Something like that. When it was, but I was still living in Southern California. I moved to San Francisco in 69.
0: So, the, do you remember in, anything else you said about that interaction with Regardi? Because I've always been sort of curious about that. He mentioned it in... Uh, the transformations opening said. Um, I should also mention a brief interaction I had with Israel Regardy. You know,
1: I don't think he stayed there very long.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the thing I remember was uh, that he he felt a, like a crow energy, like an intense crow energy. That was what my mom told me, mm-hmm. and uh, and that regarding wanted him to be his his student, but he. Uh, didn't like the energy you know he, he he didn't like that crow energy i but maybe that was crowley but, you know that, that was for for misremembering crow, crow. He was saying it the was hits. a crowley energy yeah right
1: <laughs> yeah well uh you know i don't know really much yeah. about riccardi but i guess he was an older guy because in the biography of Paul Foster case, there's a couple of letters. They
0: had some correspondence. Yeah.
1: Between the two of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he's, um, what happened, one of the things that happened, the first that I know of, uh, the first Golden Dawn, uh, reconstruction, the traditional Golden Dawn order made in modern times that I know of, uh, was based on Rigardi's published material about that he had gotten through Stella Monatina that he had gotten through Crowley about the Golden Dog. And they had, had, a, had a falling out because he had published it and uh, because he well, according to some, there's a lot of different spins that I've heard on, on these things but uh, because Regardi wanted to preserve the original pure teachings that had existed that Crowley had learned and perverted, because Crowley immediately took the name Golden Dawn as soon as the schism had happened, mm-hmm. and everybody went different directions, and Mathers and Moina changed their name to Alpha and Omega, and the other adepts, including I believe Yeats, uh, changed their name to Stella Modatina, uh, Morning Star, um, referring to Jesus, not to Satan, of course, because uh, it's a title for both, but anyway. on um, Venus. Yeah, and And Venus. Uh, Which is the highest in the original cipher manuscripts of the Golden Dawn? The highest grade was the grade of Venus, the grade of Netzach, and the initiates when they initiate when they went through and wrote it all out and made it flowery and put on costumes and and enacted it. They a bunch of people got up to that highest grade. And they were asking, well, what next, chiefs? You know, and so they were saying, next is of course five equals six because it was one equals ten, two equals nine, three equals eight, four equals seven. So they said five equals six. Well, how does that go? So they borrowed heavily from. Uh, the Society Rosicruciana in Anglia, which w- they were all initiates of, and mm. brought in some interesting stuff because Budge was translating from directly from hieroglyphs down at the British Museum, and they could just walk in and say, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And uh, so they were bringing in a lot of Egypt- Egyptology and and uh, it, it, bringing ingenuity to it, literally bringing color where it was black and white before uh, to the vault um, mm. in many places, but. Anyway, so they they invented 5 equals 6, and then a a few people would burn out because they'd go from from, uh, a ritual in which people were talking, I am Isis, the dew upon the branch you know, or stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, they're tying people to a cross and whipping them and telling them, you know, to take a, take a, 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 evoke the avenging angel Hua, uh, to bring wrath upon them and dissolve their inner rose if they should go against the order and stuff. And so people would be like, this is fucked up, you know, like, what is it? And so they invented another grade to go in between those grades, and they called it Portal. And so that was uh, consisted of of working with uh, the devil, the death, and temperance. But the whole point was, don't go down the devil path. Don't go down the death path. Temperance, you know, but they but they talk a bit about what this symbolizes, what this symbolizes, and you got to work with those energies. But what Crowley did was he got way into these two side paths and didn't have much of the temperance.
1: Didn't have the middle
0: path. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so it's in the sense of the five elements, The there was the neophyte, which you know, it's a spiritual centering, so that was kind of, I always thought you could correspond to the element of spirit, and then there's the first grade, zelator for the second grade, and then uh, Theoricus air, and then Practicus, water, Philosophus, fire, and then, uh, so then he said, okay, now there's the spirit grade, you're a complete pentagram now, and so then to, to get from there, to you transform the pentagram to a hexagram, and then you go into five equals six, and so it was like this step in between where you start invoking Thoth, you know, and Alan Bennett wrote out this Thoth invocation that Crowley loved, and so it's used equally in Golden Dawn orders and in, in Polyamic orders. Um, you know, and it goes, uh, at the end, you know, well, all of, uh, most of their big invocations at the end, um uh, Make all spirits subject unto me, so that every spirit of the firmament of the ether upon the earth and under the earth, in dry land and in the water, of whirling air and of rushing fire, should be obedient unto me, you know, and so... Well,
1: that could be quite an ego trick.
0: Yeah, <laughs> which Paul Foster Case, of course, points out. And uh, I mentioned that I was traditional Golden Dawn one time down at Boda, and they said, Don't you find that it exalts the ego? I said, Yes, yes it does, yeah. You know? <laughs> but, uh, anyhow, I'm talking too
1: much. Well, here. I think you will really enjoy reading that biography of Paul Case. Yeah. Because it adds to the historical uh, perspective on the Golden Dawn and how it evolved and, and the uh, instruction the matter of the OTA as a way of carrying the tradition of the, the Western Mystery School, yeah, tradition that. of initiation that people could use. yeah use. Uh, in the West, in America, because he was an American. Yeah, I think he was the American head of the original Golden Dawn Order. Hmm. And then at some point, there, he had a parting of ways with... Moina. Moina, yeah. the widow of
0: McGregor. Oh, but what I was getting to earlier was Rigardi published, was a guy, he was in the O.T.O., he had an oasis. Yeah,
1: he's and, one uh, of the people that had material for that biography.
0: I believe. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Chick In the 80s, 70s, he uh, he had a strip club. And he's open about this. I'm not talking any trash about him. Um, and uh, one of the girls that worked there, he was liked. She's now his wife, and she writes many of the books and uh, has for many decades now. And um, and she did the art. So it was sort of in the... They got right into, the, into that vein of the tradition of, like... McGregor Mathers telling Moina what to paint, or you know, she was scrying and and finding the right color to use for some path on the Tree of Life in some particular scale, and the but they he met Rigardi. Uh, he wrote to him and said, uh, I might be misremembering this, but he he said, uh, you know, I, hey, I'm 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 building the tools, I'm doing it, I'm, I'm building a vault, and Regardi was very excited because. He didn't get a lot of fan letters, you know. And, uh, and so he said, I would love to see your vault. And so he came and visited. And they, they snapped a picture, which is in some of Chicks' Rose books, of Regardi standing in the vault. Like, which is funny, because in, in the order I came from, you don't see the vault until uh, you're ready you only see it during ceremony you're wearing a white robe and and golden slippers and you do a particular thing when you go in and you behave a certain way when you're inside of it and there's Regardi, like with his hands in his pockets like looking around regarding himself didn't get past practicus but um, so we in the in the in our in our particular golden dawn enactment order would talk a lot of trash about that especially in the olden days when we thought we were should be in competition with the cicero order
1: oh, our, you know yeah the Regardi's letters to Paul Case or Paul Case's letters to Regardi that are in that biography
0: they written in the 1930s. Interesting. For example. Yeah. I wonder how old he would have been. I'm sure it's easy so enough to look up. He would have that.
1: been. He probably would have been pretty old. I wanted to ask you while you were talking yeah. regarding vaults. You know the vault that Paul Foster Case describes in his book *The True and Invisible Rosicrucian Order*. He describes. The vault of Christian Rosenkreuz, right, and the symbolism of that—is that anything like yes. these
0: vaults you're talking about? The the in, for example, just and this will tie in. I'm not going off on a trail too far, but in uh, the second grade of the Golden Dawn you are brought in as a Levitical priest into the whole, in, not into the Holy of Holies, but into the tabernacle, and uh, and you're told that. You know that the ancient priests would wash their hands, and then they have you wash your hands, and then the ancient priests would make a sacrifice, and they burn smoke in front of you, and then they they, they would walk through into the tabernacle, and they say, "Follow me," and you go through. And uh, instead of instead of a a a plate with twelve loaves of bread on it, there's there's a glyph with a with with four triangles connecting the 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 uh, the zodiacal signs, which are lined up also with the twelve tribes of Israel. The 12 permutations, 12 of the permutations of yod heh bav the divine name, and uh, 12 angels that court... Oh, well, not not 12 angels, but uh, yeah. the point is, there's little Catholic hosts on each of the 12, and they represent the 12 loaves of bread that were in the original tabernacle. Similarly, yes, the vault of the Adepti in the Rosicruciana, RR at AC, the Rosé-Roubaix at Horae Crucis, is... Based on, and a uh, an elaboration of the original uh, tomb, which was described in the Fama Fraternitatis of uh, Christian of of the Rosicrucians, mm-hmm. um, they described that after a hundred and twenty years, I believe, or a hundred years, they uh, that. They, they found someone was cleaning something and they, they were polishing it there was a plaque up on a wall and he, ha, he was trying to get it off so he could polish the back of it and he pulled it off and part of the wall came off and then they looked through and there was this door and so they opened Ooh. the door <laughs> and uh, there was the tomb of their founder must have stank in there maybe not i don't know maybe after 120 years it doesn't stink anymore but uh, he was perfectly preserved that's the thing that was one of the it was like a miracle yeah and uh and (laughs) and in there you know there were different things described and so as you're as you're being introduced to the vault um it's uh they're alluding to those original uh writings and someone's someone's putting them into context and saying, ah, but here we see it's elaborated upon. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, all these different... there, there were particular. There's a particular altar that's described, and that's that's there in detail, but then there's things added to it, like a dagger, and I, I don't know if those things were in the original poem, but, uh, but mm-hmm. then there's all those colorful uh, squares so that you have access to all the forces in the universe, in all universes all at once. And you stand in the center as the Christos and uh which is of course greek for the anointed one and it's explained uh well you know i don't know where this is written but there was this guy and we called him Fred or tso and just because i'm recording it i won't say his real name <laughs> um and he was an archaeologist he would dig up uh new eleusinian you know uh sites that hadn't been dug up and uh and and he had a team of people he he was working with the uh sort of the mafia in uh in in sicily Mm. which he was describing as being very different from the mafia here because there it's just basically if you want to do business in town then when the when those guys come around you say yes oh thank you and they say do you need any help and you say oh uh no we're good you know or or yeah well actually we're looking for this and then they'll come around again one day and they'll say um we need your help, and you say yes. <laughs> you know that was just basically witty. You know, otherwise you're not going to be doing business in town. And mm-hmm. and when that carried over to New York and Chicago, there was a lot more guns involved and things. But but out there, you just get you're no longer welcome in the community, and and they just shun you. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like a little bit more civilized, but kind of weird too. But anyway, he would his the point. He had a teacher who wrote the book a book called A Lucius. There's probably many, but. Uh, he was a professor at a particular college in Switzerland, and I don't know the name of it. And uh, and so what TSO told me was that when you were in Elusius in the olden days, you go through everybody who was initiated. The 15000 some odd people that were initiated into the rites of Elusius, uh, slaves were admitted. Nero was not. Um, you know, there, is, they they didn't You didn't have your class when you were there. You, it was it was separate from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody kept it secret, basically, for the most part. Um, by the 4th century BC, uh, you know, there was satires being written about it, but before that it was much more serious. Everything was much more serious before the 4th century BC. But, uh, anyway, um, what was I saying? Okay, so there was the Lesser Mysteries and the Greater Mysteries, and the, uh, the, le- the Greater Mysteries, well, the Lesser Mysteries were, you know, among other things about Demeter, Persephone, Hades. And seasons, uh, you know, a lot of basic stuff, um, and then the gods. You would go and see Cronus's temple and see all, you know, Zeus's temple and everything. Um, and then in in the greater mysteries, you were it was a little more severe and a little bit more reserved for the few among them, the hierophants of the outer of the of the lesser mysteries. Um, and so after following Demeter around and working with all these Greek gods. Demeter takes you to. Um, and Demeter's had a veil on the entire time. They, in the outer mysteries, she's always wearing a veil. And in the greater mysteries, she's wearing a veil. And then you're brought to a tomb. And you're brought into the tomb. And a wooden uh, vesica Pisces, uh, uh, you know, uh, vagina, is placed on your head. And it symbolizes rebirth in the spirit. And they poured olive oil on you. And that was the moment that you transformed from a Mistos to a Christos you were no longer um, an aspirant on the did people path.
1: actually undergo changes of consciousness when this was happening the, yeah that was or the was idea it, just simply it was like acted an outer, out an it, outer ritual representing all, that?
0: all we all we know is what was acted out you know i mean hopefully for some of them it was genuine <clears throat> for others they were like this is weird you know or but they were possibly on psychedelics as well but uh, the point is, when they ed- they exited, they were told, "Now you are Osiris. You are no longer Jim. You are Osiris Jim, and uh, and you are the resurrected one. Idea, and you were right. Christos. And this was pre Jesus, of course. Like this is kind of interesting, you know, to like look at in context of the New Testament and, and how the Eleusinian Mysteries ended up crossing paths historically with the uh, G- with the Hebrew tradition to give birth to Christianity, but." Uh, Anyway, um, then when you exited the tomb, Demeter had her veil off, and she was Isis, and and mm-hmm. and and, and you, they, they said she's her real name is Isis. This is your wife. Now that you are Osiris, and uh, mm-hmm. you know you didn't didn't marry her, you know, but that was you know part of the ceremony. So yeah, I always thought that was an interesting sort of like a proto history to the symbolism of the Golden Dawn and the symbolism of the Catholic Church because you have. Okay, everybody, just pray to Mary. Just pray for forgiveness. Just pray the Rosary. And then, for the for the the, the, the real serious, you know, people who want to get get into it, then then down the road after you, many ring past knots, they say, become one with the body of Christ. You know, like take these words of Paul to heart. The reason why they didn't want to translate it for so long was they didn't want the common. To, to be like, well, is this about us or is this about the priests? You know, like mm-hmm. like because you know then once it was translated, we were like, I think this could, this is about us. You know, like we should be part of the body of Christ. Too. We are, yeah, yeah. Well, and you don't need a cookie. You know, I
1: think I mentioned when I was here visiting with you guys uh, last week or whatever it was about a book called The Road to Eleusis, which is about the Eleusian Mysteries and it had three authors uh, Albert Hoffman who discovered LSD-25 and Gordon Wasson and somebody else and what they have done in that, it's a small little book, but what they've done in that book is it made a very strong case for the idea that part of the initiation into those mysteries involved a psychedelic experience. Yeah. The person they were blindfolded, and they went through some kind of a tunnel or something, and they had to spend several hours going through this
0: passageway, waiting for it to kick in. <laughs> well, they probably given a drink after <laughs> it had
1: kicked in. Yeah, I mean, it was a drink they had, but they used the, the, the ergot
0: Gai-can? fungus on rye. The
1: the Ergot fungus that grows on rye mm. was one of the ingredients, and they they have pictures of all these different. Plants from which these things were derived on the goblets that they drank out of. And stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was a definite rebirth kind yeah. of
0: ritual. I know. You, it's hard to get away with a uh, the OTO does it. That's what one of the. I'm a little jealous of the Thalamites because they'll go ahead and cross that line. They'll be like, you know what? We're going to do this initiation on LSD. You know, like that more more so than the Golden Dawn. Not every OTO order or lodge is like that, by the way. But, mm-hmm. you know, some of them. That use the name OTO, at least at the parties.
1: Well, I, I, for one, after reading that book, and considering several things, I think that that was part of that tradition. Yeah. But before somebody went through that process or that initiation, there was quite a lengthy period of preparation. They had yeah. So that I mean, it was like a technology to it. So that when they went through this. Everybody would have the same spiritual experience. Yeah. And they had to be prepared psychologically and spiritually for that ahead of time. Yeah. And then there were like people who were candidates, and only some of those candidates were selected to continue on in and go through the experience. Hmm. And it was all kept very hush-hush.
0: Yeah. Of course.
1: Yeah. Interesting. They They make a real good case in that book
0: about it. Which book? The Road to Elysium. Oh, right, right. The Road to Elysium. Very good.
1: Yeah, that, that book, I think it came out in the 70s.
0: Okay, here's a question. It's sort of a different question, but related with to the interview. Um, when my dad in the 60s would teach, did he... What did he do? Was he saying this is how to read tarot in the Celtic cross spread? Or was he putting one card in front of you with a candle? What What was the process? What Do you remember?
1: What? Well, what I experienced was he did, I experienced him doing doing tarot readings for
0: people. I remember do, that. Yeah.
1: Doing readings and getting intuitions from his inner guidance and telling people things about what they could expect in their life or... What they were dealing with, or would have to deal with, and uh, I think that I don't know if he was conscious of this at the time, but I think he actually foretold to me that I was going to be going to live in Alaska. Huh? And this was uh, several years, you know, before I had any thought of doing that.
0: Yeah. Interesting. But he was Something about, about a long this, journey. Yeah,
1: journey, and and you know, by yourself, and.
0: All Seven this, or eight of of uh, swords. Yeah, of those, it was with one
1: of boat. those. It was one of those things. Yeah, yeah. The boat.
0: Yeah.
1: But I mean, he was he was drawing out of it all this additional information.
0: Yeah.
1: And then he, another one that he predicted that came true in a strange way was having to do with a with a, an attempt at a political revolution. Nice. An upheaval.
0: That was pre sixty eight. That was like,
1: yeah. In fact, well, the one about with the, with the swords and the boat and all that—that that might have been in the sixties too. I'm not really clear. Yeah, yeah. As to when it was, but it wasn't until eighty three that I actually moved from Boulder, Colorado, to Anchorage.
0: Yeah. Did he um, burn incense or? dim the lights or anything?
1: Yeah, he had the lights down and he created a nice ambience. Yeah. Very nice ambience, candlelight.
0: But no beard back then?
1: <laughs> no, the beard came a little later.
0: <laughs> um, it's a trip to think about that because I knew him as the tarot reader. You know.
1: Well, I'll tell you another story about him now. That
0: mm-hmm. I should tell you. Well,
1: when he predicted about this thing regarding a political revolution, there was someone that I knew as a student at UC Irvine, who was kind of a wild person, who was into psychedelics and into tarot and into Eastern mysticism and stuff, so. and uh, something went wrong with him. He moved, after graduation, he moved up to uh, Oakland, California. and he got involved with someone who he said was a wizard up there and uh, when I was living in a flat in San Francisco he came up and visited me and at this point he was this was like in the, the late 60's he was he had completely changed from being on kind of a spiritual path to more of a political revolutionary Path. And he started participating in these these protests, like in Berkeley and Oakland and so forth. They would, he would refer to the, the police as pigs, and he would talk about pig psychology. And He was identifying himself with the emperor card, mm. you know, saying that he was going to be an emperor and that there was going to be this, this big revolution. And then one night in the kitchen, he just he just horrified me where he started talking about things getting so organized in this organization he was with that there would be people with nuclear weapons blowing up all the major cities in the United States. Mm. And he was he was kind of narrating it like...
0: Tyler Dearden from Fight Club, it sounds he like. He was
1: narrating it like, like a sportscaster saying, oh, and here goes New York City, here goes Chicago, and here goes L.A. And, you know, he was... Wow. he was really you know, oh flipped, God. Oh. kind of flipped out I mean he he wanted this to happen he was he was in tune with some diabolical force you know that he was getting a lot of energy and power from and he tried to recruit me to join his organization so that was where the connection was which huh. your dad had, had predicted you know in this tarot reading years before Yeah, he was trying to con- convert me you know or recruit me and I wanted nothing to do with it. He, he had this, this woman with him who had, who had been clubbed in one of the uh, demonstrations at the Democratic uh, Convention in 1968 you know, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And she was you know, full of the same kind of rage and so forth. Yeah. And So he, uh, he and her were going to go to participate in some march over in Berkeley and they expected to get thrown in jail. And I said, well, I'll try to send you some good energy. He says, don't send love. Don't send any of that kind of energy. Wow. So it was pretty bad. And then as things went on, he actually he realized he wasn't going to persuade me you know, to join them. And he launched a psychic attack on me. Huh. He sent me stuff in the mail. And... I was having, you know, dreams about him and stuff, and it was kind of bad. I mean, he was doing a because he'd been kicked out of the flat.
0: Right.
1: It was only because I'd invited him in as a friend that he was there, and he was giving a bad time to some of the other people that lived there. They didn't want him there. Yeah. But he he was trying to attack me psychically, and he became involved with an organization that was in the news at the time called the SLA, which stood for... Sri Liberation Army or something, and this group of people—they kidnapped the heiress Patty Hearst. Oh.
0: Yeah, we saw that. They, yeah. They
1: kidnapped her, and she actually converted.
0: Wow. Yeah. To them and participated in, yeah. in yeah. the robbery and stuff. History. Drunk history. Yeah, so we got a, a sort of version of that. We something. got a little taste of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the guy,
1: the guy who was the wizard, who was sort like of his leader had a certain way of speaking. He came on on the radio. And the way he was speaking <clears throat> was identical to the way this guy I knew had started speaking. So he had sort of like imprinted that guy's personality. Yeah. And so that's how I probably
0: through sleep deprivation. was able to tell
1: there was a connection between them. Wow. And uh, he had sent me like a broken mirror and a bunch of stuff that he had written and all that. And I took that with me when I went down to L.A. and I brought it to your dad. Huh. This is where your dad comes <laughs> from. And I told your dad what was going on. And so your dad proceeded to do kind of like a little ceremonial thing It's kind of a psychic thing. And he said that your dad said that he was working with a with a African-American woman who was into voodoo. And that he was he had been a hit there were a few other people that he'd attacked and he wanted to see if he could stop it, but your dad wasn't able to stop it. He said, the guy, he's too strong, I can't, I can't break this thing, but I can see what's going on, you know, and he will continue attacking you. So your dad took me over to a place that some friends of his had and uh, it, was, it was a store in Pasadena called the Three Wizards.
0: Hmm. And
1: one one okay. of them was a man... The wizard's
0: three. Wizards three. Yeah. yeah, they became the Crystal Cave.
1: One of them was a man named Dick Quinn, that your dad knew, and my sister also, I think, knew him from the Dota or something. But anyway, we went over there, and he introduced me to Dick Quinn, and told him what was happening, and Dick Quinn asked me to give him, you know, the stuff the guy had sent. And he took it kind of like in a back room. I don't know what he did, but he did something back there. And then he came back out and he told me that the guy would never be able to attack me again, that things had been fixed so that whenever he sends out any negative energy to attack anybody, it will immediately come back and attack him. Nice. So it's going to recycle straight, sort of like instant karma. Yeah. Instead of karma in your next life or whatever he will recycle back so he won't be able to attack anybody and your dad was describing him as having experienced some of that energy coming back to him, he said he was, he was doubled over in pain holding his gut and that he was asking that Buddha woman to help him and she couldn't help him and then Dick Quinn said to me that he, and Dick Quinn has like some female guides that were that he was working with on the inner plane, those guides had told him that this guy had left some of his clothing in my room, in my flat in San Francisco, and that he was using that as a base to come there astrally and attack me. And he said, get rid of that, get that stuff, anything that you know was his, get it out of your place, because then he won't be able to use that. Yeah. And sure enough, it was right there, and I had he had done some kind of a spell on us so that I didn't pay attention to it. He put like a ring pass knot or something on it. Hmm. And I had just never thought about it. I saw it sitting there, but I just, it was like it didn't register. I never thought, well, yeah, that was Tony's and I should get it out of here. So, you know, he was a pretty powerful guy, I guess. Yeah. You know, in what he was doing. Wow. So I got that stuff out of there. He couldn't attack anymore. He told me to bury the, the broken glass. and Basically, it just kind of put him out of business. And then after I was in San Francisco, a couple of weeks later, I had a, a dream with this guy in it. And the guy was asking me if I would help him to heal some of the other people he'd
0: attacked.
1: Huh? And I told him to fuck himself. <laughs> <laughs> that's your baby. you know. it's not mine. Oh, it's all
0: coming back on him. Yeah,
1: it all came back uh... on him. So he wouldn't be able to launch
0: well, good attacks on anybody again so they i would imagine i don't know i'm just guessing but i imagine uh, what one of the things that they were doing the liberation army was uh to postpone because this is something a few others were into to postpone karmic repercussions for actions in this life to another life mm-hmm. and uh then just pretend that doesn't exist <laughs> and then and then live this life wreaking as much havoc as uh
1: well, they, what they were involved in doing was at these different marches and things, they would go there as agitators and use psychic influence to incite people to do violence. You know,
0: to... Make you know, me think of some of the things that were the, going on with Occupy.
1: Well, Occupy was really mild. Right. I mean, there, we had these riots down in Watts where they were starting to burn the city down. Mm. They were involved in the fact that the head of the SLA was an African American man named Sin Q, and he actually met his end uh, within a year of this, down in Watts, in a burning house. And I mean, they had weapons. You know, they were they were shooting people. Yeah. And what their hope was was to get enough people rioting and doing violence to bring the country down. Yeah. But they they really didn't have a hope in hell of doing that. But they wanted to recruit you know, more people to, to work for their cause. And that's why he tried to uh, recruit me. There was like the Black Panthers, and then there were the White Panthers. The White Panthers wore these Red Berets. Hmm. The Black Panthers wore Black Berets. And a couple of times, when I was getting off of work at my job, there were these guys in uh, Red Berets standing around. That was all to intimidate me, because what he had threatened to do was to kidnap me. They had kidnapped other people, and they did, you know, they kidnapped Patty Hearst. And once you're kidnapped, they would give you LSD, and then they would, when you were vulnerable, they would psychically go to work on you to try to uh, either convert you or totally flip you out. Yeah. Very evil thing. But thanks to your dad, I was freed from having to deal with that.
0: That is a very interesting story.
1: Yeah, it was one I was meaning to, wanting to tell you. Yeah. Huh. Sure, Dad was able to psychically read and see what was going on.
0: Yeah.
1: But by himself, he wasn't able to stop it, so he went to his friends.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the Wizards 3, uh, my parents, when they were doing magic, you know, just what I remember from stories... Back in the 70s, um, they were using incense from the Wizards 3, and when I was 14, 15, I started getting into magic. Um, I dug up, we had all their old incense just in the kitchen up on a high counter, and my friend Isaac came over, and he had Buckland's Cabalistic. no, it was, what was it? It was the Witchcraft Encyclopedia or something, and, uh, and, and he said, I want to do one of these rituals, and we just need to get some incense, and... And I was like, "Well, I've got plenty of incense." And he saw, it and it was like, "Love, wealth, Merlin, you know, uh, 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 dragon's blood, uh, you know, all these different things." And he uh, was like, "What? What is this?" And so, so, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess, around that time, I got this sort of sense of like walking in my father's footsteps by being a weirdo, you know. And uh, that sort of eventually led to uh, that was shortly after he passed away too. So I was, I was wanting to evoke him you know, in my own life, sort of, and uh, anyhow.
1: Yeah, I think Diane had a friend from the VOTA that was like an apprentice at the Wizards 3. She could tell you Mm. more about that than I I could. uh,
0: And then they got into the science of characteristics and Est. Yeah, he got
1: into that. Well, one other thing that, that, that Quinn told me, he gave me one of the Psalms to read, and he said to just picture, picture that guy with his back to you, going away from you, and read this psalm every day hmm. for a month, and I did. Nice. And that also helped to get to get rid of him. Well, the psalms are a very
0: powerful yeah. uh, I have prayer a, book,
1: you know, thing to use.
0: There's a book for
1: various uh, situations.
0: Anna Reva's um, Psalm Magic, or something like that, you know. And then there's different, uh, with the Shem Hempfresh, the, fresh, the, the uh, 72 angels, each have psalms attributed to them. Mm. And uh, so when you're evoking them, you use certain divine names and certain sigils, and, and then you read the psalm.
1: Yeah, well, it was when your dad was really involved in this that he wrote the transformations.
0: Yeah. That
1: inspired. He used some of the lingo that Werner Erhard came out with. He was quite enthusiastic about
0: that. Yeah. Yeah, he uh I guess one of the things that was borrowed from L. Ron Hubbard was the uh the Nota Mystery Scale all, well the uh the emotional tone scale with the Nota mystery mystery scale alongside of it. Um as it existed in the seventies. It was sort of a ongoing project after he, after he died and everything. But uh I remember uh it was one of those guys, I don't know exactly who it was, this, that founded Est. Was Scientology was going after him because he was basically taking a lot of their stuff and re-
1: Werner well, re- I
0: think, was this. That was him? Scientology. Yeah, He's the founder yeah.
1: of Est. Est stood for Erhard Seminar Training.
0: Mm. But he, uh, I would say I'm bored, and so my dad would get out the... You know the book, and pull out the emotional tone scale, and say, "Okay, so you're here. <laughs> um, you don't want to go down to anger, right? So do you want to go to one of these other emotions?
1: Who would, oh, who would okay. say they were bored?
0: <laughs> I, I would. Oh, you? Yeah, would. I was like five. You oh, know, so six. he would.
1: He would offer you a little,
0: yeah, a little journeys
1: map. into these different states of the
0: emotional. Yeah, you yeah, would say, well, if you're, if you, are you, do you want to be bored? Do you like being bored, or do you want to be something else? Because <laughs> uh, the other emotions are up here." You can be bored, sure, you know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with being bored. It's, it's on the positive side of the scale, you know, it's like <laughs> the lowest of the positive emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, you could be interested, you could uh, be cheerful if you want. Yeah, a born dog, you know, <laughs> pick one. <laughs> yeah. My stepmom was making a bust. She was commissioned to make a bust of Einstein um, for uh, Caltech, which is now in brass in Einstein's room. No. Uh, but when she was making it, she 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 kept accidentally making my dad. <laughs> and she kept having to say, No, no, oh, John. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so
1: it just automatically came about. That's yeah.
0: yeah. She kept having to go, No, no, Einstein, Einstein. Did it.
1: They weren't ready for a bust of John Dan.
0: <laughs> oh, one thing I wanted to mention um, in the interview with between you and my dad, where you inter- interviewed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, just for the record here, uh, there's an interview, if you Google John Dan Reeb interview, uh, you can find it, it's a, it's under Google Google Documents, it's 90 minutes, Kess Fry interviewing my dad on Thursday, July 26th, 1990, at mm-hmm. uh, in Sierra Madre Canyon. So that's what, uh, po- poetically, one of the reasons I wanted to interview Kess was, uh, was, in this, in, in in light of that, but uh, also because he's a wealth of information about Tibetan Buddhism, about which I'm very interested. As well as, uh, this guy hung out on Alan Watts's houseboat, and he's sort of ho hum about it. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, he's more interested in the Lama he met there. Uh, which Lama was it? Was this
1: lama one? Lama Anagarika Govinda. Yeah, here we go. He was a German-born uh, man who converted to Buddhism when he was around twenty, and was a monk in salon for a number of years and they sent him as a representative to to go and debate with the uh, Buddhists in northern India who were of the Mahayana and Vajrayana persuasions. And he got snowed in in Sikkim and had to spend the winter there and during that course he became a Tibetan Buddhist. Hmm. His guru Pomo Geshe Rinpoche was, he met him and so he he, uh, the he spoke seven languages fluently.
0: And Foundations he, of Tibetan Mysticism yeah, is the book he wrote.
1: Yeah, it's one of the earliest books written for people in the West on Tibetan meditation and mysticism. And he came from the West, so he's very good at communicating with
0: Westerners. But the thing I wanted to mention was, toward the end, you, uh, you guys were talking about What is wrong? You know, I mean, uh, with the world right now, or then. And it hasn't gotten that much better. Um, It's just different now. It's very different. And there's things that I've noticed, and that leads me to my point. Um, It was a big problem with with television, especially uh, network television, with commercial advertising, and it's, its saturation in our world, then, in 1990, and now even more so, because we've yes. got it on our personal screen that we're always looking at, whether it's in our phone or, or uh, we've got ads popping up, you know, every other minute. Uh, mm. But he had mentioned that one one possible solution he saw came possibly through narrowcasting, uh, and he used the example of Andrew DeFisano, uh running a public access uh, show for people who were interested in what he had to teach, and that uh, that people tuned into that, and so so I, I've heard that that interview many times in the years since I was 15 when I first heard it after my dad passed away, um, and YouTube came about, and I, I that was one of the things that really inspired me to jump on that. Mm. I uh, as soon as as soon as I realized that there was a platform. For any old Joe like me to go get a two hundred dollar camera and uh, and edit some stuff with some pirated Final Cut Pro, uh, I'll, I'll you know th- never I'll edit that part out, um, <laughs> you know uh, and uh, and put something up there that anyone in the world can see. Uh, yes. I jumped on it and I you know I mean I played around with it. I, I a lot of this stuff was re- really frivolous. I was practicing, you know, for a number of years, and then more recently I s- put some serious stuff up, which I'll show you. I don't think I've showed you very many of them. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, I just wanted to see see if you had any thoughts about may- maybe a possible connection between video, streaming video and, and, and that kind of media opening up possibilities for evolution of human consciousness beyond where we were stunted before for generations of people sitting there eating their TV dinners and watching whatever the media thought that we should be watching.
1: Well, I think there's a tremendous potential in that. The mass media in general, I think is inadvertently, maybe in some cases intentionally, keeping people's consciousness kind of stuck in Within the parameters of the mindset of what we call the false self system and centering prayer, yeah, most advertising appeals to these different programs for happiness: more material possessions and wealth and stuff, more affection, esteem, and approval from others, or more power and control, and so forth, more more pleasure and sensation, or intimacy and a sense of belonging and fulfillment to try to fill in the hole in our soul which is there because we have lost contact with the spiritual center within us that is our true nature we are both human beings and spiritual beings and we've become over identified with a separate self sense of our human personality our ego and we're totally under identified with that deep inner core of our spiritual self yeah so Um, I think the, the mess that the world is in, or that we're all in, can be traced back to this basic ignorance of our true nature as spiritual beings. So anything that will help to bring this to people's attention and make them aware of the fact that there are ways of making contact with that that. Within each person, there is a center of wisdom, peace, strength understanding the divine center that we can all access which is the only solution to filling in that hole in our soul uh, would be of tremendous value yeah. and we would be less dependent and reliant upon and addicted to external substitutes for that that are being marketed to us by commercial interests the mass media and our cultural conditioning So getting free of the cultural conditioning is one of the positive things that sometimes people will experience when they have a psychedelic experience where temporarily their consciousness sort of jumps out of that box and they see things briefly from the perspective of their deep inner self, their spiritual self. And it's a whole new reality. As anyone can attest who's experienced that, whether it's through meditation, any type of peak experience, or something facilitated by a sacred substance and there's many ways of experiencing that but the real goal is for us to grow into and become that in our day to day life not simply to look at the possibility and then come back and say yeah well that was nice I wish it could be like that all the time yeah. it can be like that yeah. but we have to do the inner work on ourselves in cooperation with that divine presence in us Um, Carl Jung had the term, what he called the, the transcendent function within the unconscious, which is this inner being within us that will work to heal and transform us and bring us into our true self. I think it's something that's natural to our operating system as human beings. Just as our bodies physically grow naturally, provided they're given what they need, to do that. The same thing with our consciousness and our soul. If we create the right conditions within ourselves, we will naturally flourish and blossom into the spiritual beings that we were intended to be. I, I do think that the media, and particularly animated media and other forms, are ways in which this can be communicated to people with today's consciousness and in today's world. I may be wrong, but I suspect that less people are doing the type of research that involves studying and reading books and so forth that used to be done when I was growing up because that was the <laughs> primary way to do it. Yeah. A lot of the things that are available now did not exist at that time. So the message, the content, needs to be adapted to the new media of communicating it in order for it to get out there. Like if it could be presented on YouTube or however yeah tremendous value but basically I think the way the way things will change permanently for the better is if our consciousness changes and evolves and that's one person at a time but groups of people can do that together and all of that is feeding positive energy into the collective psyche or what Deschardins called the null sphere of the human race and it reverberates back on everyone else on the planet and can help to raise the consciousness of everyone who's willing and trusting to let go of attachment to that false self system of over-identification with the ego and its delusional programs for happiness and realize that there's far better potential that we all have waiting for us to uncover and awaken yeah. if you're a Buddhist you call it your Buddha nature for example, if you're, if you're a Christian, you would call it the, the Christos within you, the divine indwelling, the divine trinity. Yeah. The Names given, are just names, but what the reality of it is, it's beyond language, beyond concepts. We can't nail it down with concepts, but we can point to it with symbols and ideas and, and language. The main thing is for that to become alive in us so that we can grow into it and become who we really are. And the more people that do that, the more love there is in the world as a result of that, the more goodwill of people to people, the better off our planet will be. And of course, we need to take care of our planet's ability to sustain healthy, organic life. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we won't be able to live here. Yeah, we're just starting
0: world. to realize we have the potential to screw it all up.
1: We're yeah. well on the road to doing that.
0: Yeah.
1: And there are false self-interests of an economic greedy nature that are willing to trash the planet for the sake of getting short-term financial gratification and gain, thinking, well, as I said the other day when I was here, it's not going to be my problem when the world's all screwed up, because I'll be dead and gone. But if those people realized about the truth of reincarnation, (laughs) they'd realize it will be, because... The world we leave behind is the world we're going to be reborn into. So even from that very selfish point of view, people have a vested interest in the well-being of our planet in the future for evolution to be able to continue. So we all have a responsibility. I think the most important thing anybody can do is to work on their own spiritual growth and the awakening of their own consciousness so that that can be contributed to the collective. because we certainly know there's a tremendous amount of negativity in the collective from all the terrible things that are happening on the world and that are being broadcast through the news and everywhere. It's creating rings of fear surrounding the planet and causing discouragement and depression and hopelessness. And there's no need for that. I mean, there's a difficult situation But there is something we can each do. And if enough of us are doing it, even though we don't have the the money and the power and the influence, our spiritual influence will turn the tide.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm encouraged when I hear things like that if 1% or if half of 1% of the human race were to be be enlightened or to be in a state of compassion, that it would uh, have a sort of a hundredth monkey effect. Absolutely. The human race would wake up.
1: I think that's really true because the same divine presence is already inside of everybody. It's already there. It's just a question of it being nourished, stimulated. And people will respond to that because that's, that's where true fulfillment and happiness are. It's not in all these other substitute things that we get so enamored of and chase after. In terms of the materialistic values of pleasure and excitement and stimulation, drama, affection, esteem, approval, fame, power, control, domination, over-identification with our group and our cultural conditioning. These are all things that have relative good to them. They're not wrong, but when it's overdone and used as a substitute, for God in our life or for our spiritual life then it becomes a sickness and that's what, that's what we're stuck with that's what we're having to overcome that's what's creating the negativity that is threatening the future of our well-being as a species
0: Yeah. yesterday the Karmapa published an article um, in which it was about resolving conflict and uh, the whole article was about when you're in a when there's a state of conflict you know the best thing that you can do is work on yourself and uh, be free of it you know don't don't be locked in the conflict um, acknowledge that you might not win and that or that it might take many years to resolve the conflict uh, and that it goes on about working on yourself and 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 uh, and and at the end he says, and uh, in the end, if you do all these things, whole world.
1: <laughs> <I do>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah and that is that is so true. We can't we can't allow the negativity of conflict or tragic events to destroy our own peace of mind.
0: Yeah.
1: So, you know, we need to acknowledge the truth, but we also need to acknowledge that within us there is this center of peace and strength and wisdom and love, that is who we truly are, what we truly are, and to, to nourish that in others and in ourselves. Forgiveness is so important. That was one of the fundamental teachings of Jesus, was forgive one another, love one another as I have loved you. Forgiveness gives us peace of mind and it frees us. We can become detached from conflict rather than over-identified with and caught up in it, sucked into it, allowing it to take over our consciousness. That's what we're in danger of doing if we overexpose ourselves to too much negative news, too much negativity. So there needs to be a balance between our outer life and our inner spiritual life. We need to take some time for ourselves just to be quiet and to, to go inside and meditate and make contact with that deeper inner center within us. I think that's one of the the dangers of the increased amount of external stimulation that people are getting from all the new media and the electronics is that people can get so addicted to looking at screens that that becomes their whole life, and they lose themselves. They lose. They don't develop a sense of who they really are or what their purpose is. Our real purpose that we all have is to contribute to our own spiritual growth, and the evolution of humanity and the planet. Using those things but not allowing them to become our master. Yeah. We're not becoming so addicted and dependent on them that we can't we don't know what to do with ourselves if we don't have a screen to look at. Yeah. That's a slavery situation. Degrading. And the content of what's on those screens is the crucial thing. It's gonna make all the difference. If it's just superficial, meaningless and negative, it's gonna poison People's minds.
0: It makes but me if, think of also.
1: If there's positive content, yeah, good messages, encouraging people. Then,
0: but even it still, be beneficial. even still, like in uh, many, uh, you know, in the Yoga Sutras, and I believe probably the Buddha said. There's the iron chain and the golden chain, and the iron chain is bad karma, and the golden chain is good karma. <laughs> They're both so, chains. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to let go of the chains, you know. Yeah, uh, right. Whether they be gold or, or let... There was a, a point where uh, I got some very positive feedback from one of my yoga classes, and I felt this euphoric feeling of... Oh, and I I wrung it in. You know, I was like, ring it in, ring it in. You know, because if I expect myself not to feel devastated when I get criticized, then I need to reel it in when I get complimented and just humbly say thank you, you know, and, and move on. And yeah, not, humility
1: not is humility is our best protection against all temptation.
0: It takes vigilance sometimes though. Yeah.
1: You know? I mean I think you deserve to enjoy that positive feedback. Yeah. But don't expect to have it all the time. Or right. Or don't get, get depressed. To it. They don't get addicted to it or depressed if it's not there, because that's, that's not you. You Another don't need addiction. that. Yeah. That's, it's icing on the cake, and it's nice, and you deserve it, but be detached from it. Yeah. Don't, don't allow that golden chain to put you in chains.
0: <laughs> Harp Transition provided by Camille and Kennerly, their rendition of Game of Thrones. Thank you, Kess Fry. That was lovely had a wonderful time. I, um, I don't consider myself to be an authority, uh, as much as many people that I know. So if you're listening to these episodes and it's just painful because of how ignorant I am or how ignorant my guests are, please call 626-367-9254. Let me know where I've, where I've gone astray and, uh, and what books I, I should be reading instead of the ones that I've read. And, uh, you know, uh, or whatever it is, if you want to call me up and just say hello and check in, you don't have to be the main interview, you know. Uh, so so if you want to just call and, you know, have a five minute little hello, little shout out to my favorite kind of voodoo or whatever, you can use an alias if you'd like. Anytime, 24 7. Doesn't matter what day it is. Right now, just turn off the podcast and call 626 367. 9254 I will be in the next episode of Very Honored Frater BT's Esoterra Nerd Podcast Thank you for listening Good night